So for HR professionals, you are the one who has to cannonball into this sea of DEI, EDI, EDIJ, all of the acronyms, and say, okay, how can I relate myself personally to this? How can I relate this to the professional work? And then again, how do I relate it back to business? Because it all has to come back to business. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces, diversify our thinking, and achieve significant HR success. Hello, and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. My name is Nick Day, founder of Leading HR Recruitment Agency, JGA Recruitment and host, of course, of this beautiful HR L&D podcast. Now, remember, if you love the show, please, please, please do review it. Share it with all of your HR colleagues, all of your learning and development friends. Shout about it on LinkedIn and hit that subscribe button so you never miss a future episode. Right, on to today's fantastic guest. I am joined today by Jess Osvo. Now, she's an all-around HR go-getter who possesses over 10 years in HR, recruitment, DE&I, and L&D. Currently co-founder of The Rise Journey, she's also head of learning and organisational development at a mental health startup. Now, Jess is joining me today to talk about integrating positive equality, diversity, and inclusion processes and policies into all aspects of a business. That's because she is extremely passionate, and you're going to find that out during the course of this episode, about creating transparency and fundamental change in people operations. Jess is 100% focused on hands-on engagement and real-world experiences because, folks, she has one fundamental goal, and that goal is to create fundamental change. It's something I can't wait to find out more about. Jess, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. It's a subject that many, many HR leaders are talking about at the minute, so I want to get straight into the deep end, because you are co-founder, as I mentioned in my intro, of The Rise Journey, and that's therisejourney.com for those interested, where you work to operationalize, um, you look to improving diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and accessibility for businesses as part of a foundational and sustainable organizational culture. But I wondered if you would, if you could just tell some of our listeners, what's been the journey that you've been on that's given you such such passion, such fire for for delivering these fundamental changes? Yeah, so I was very fortunate and privileged enough to come from a line of very strong women. Um, My grandmother had a convertible in the 1940s. Um, My mother got her doctorate while I was in school. So I had these incredible positive examples and women who fought for what they wanted. Um, And so when I entered the workforce at 24 in New York, um, I very quickly hit a glass ceiling and fought against it. And ever since have transitioned into different HR roles, DEI roles, L&D roles. And because of my privilege, because of how I grew up in my place, you know, I'm at a different level than other people. And I see the struggles of other people. And I said, what is this? What's going on? And that actually led me to a course where I met my co-founder for the Rise Journey, because there's a lot of information in the DEI or EDI space, and it's changing and evolving, and it doesn't stop, and it's part of our name, the Rise Journey. Where I'm at in my life right now is, how can I elevate voices that don't sound like me? How can I find and share perspectives that aren't mine? Who can I connect with to broaden my horizons? And then on the business front, how do I embody that for others? How do I support organizations with those perspectives, with those ideas, with those stories so that they can not become better, but become more worldly so they can improve? You know, we live in a capitalistic society for the most part, you know, DEI or EDI or DEBA, whatever you call it, it's good for business. It's good organizational development. And so, you know, starting from strong women moving into how do you make the workplace better for everybody and more equitable for everybody is kind of a really natural landing spot for me that I did not anticipate from the beginning. Sure, sure. I mean, something that I guess everyone will recognize here is building inclusion and belonging into the remote world, particularly post-pandemic now, people are, are working remotely as well. It's a huge subject for any podcast to really try and tackle. But you've got significant experience here in really helping businesses to become more inclusive, to really help champion their diversity, you know, to improve their cultures and ultimately create spaces for employees to bring, as you've termed it on your website, their whole authentic selves to work. 
tell me about the work you're doing then to make that happen and why why it's so important that companies do embrace this fully. Yeah, so I want to address um, many of your listeners are going to say, oh, authentic selves, like it's one of those one of those hot button topics right now. And to do that, there needs to be psychological safety. And again, another keyword um, that you hear often and pretty much to me what that means is they feel safe to be themselves, to show themselves, to you know, authentically be themselves. They're not afraid. And so when we talk to businesses, it's saying, you know, what problems as a business are you trying to solve? And starting with that, because ultimately good DEI, bringing your authentic self to work, it all comes down to doing good business. Doing good business means doing good by your clients, your customers, your employees, your financial situation. They all come together. And that's the flaw I see in a lot of other DEI consulting agencies is they're not bringing that piece in. And DEI has to relate to the strategic plan. It has to be integrated into the strategic plan. So when we talk to companies, you know, specifically about remote work and, you know, we've just proved with the pandemic that most jobs, you know, of a certain type can be done from home or remotely, you say, where are those gaps? Do you need people in office? What is the difference? What is the culture difference? And you think about flexible scheduling, you know, when you allow people to work from home or from anywhere, um, all of a sudden you've opened up your talent pool. And so you can be more diverse. And so all of these pieces connect together. And so it's really hard to say you're solving one problem. So when you solve ideally the authentic self problem, you have to integrate in, okay, is my you know diversity of the workforce. You have to integrate in flexible scheduling. You have to integrate in performance management, all of these other pieces. So everything is really tied together. It's, I think it's quite an exciting thing for HR leaders this right? because I think now there's a real awareness globally that HR leaders and HR departments and L&D departments are actually have a huge role to play. It's a real fundamental, significant role to play in helping businesses to really unleash their, their employee potential, right? And I think we've seen that during the pandemic and how people have responded, the way that people have been able to be agile and, and really just to adjust to the changes that have been thrust upon them. And I guess they're probably never been worked harder either than they are right now with all the different yes. things that are going on, the new worlds of working, the future of work and all that that goes with it. So what would you say are the kind of the fundamental foundations that an HR leader needs to consider if they really want to start embedding a positive ED&I culture within a business? Are there some simple steps or, or I guess what are the stepping stones they need to start embracing to start getting those things in play? Yeah, I think to not be afraid to be wrong um, and to just have your eyes and ears open. I, I talk about this a lot that, you know, professionally, I'm very proud of what I do. I have a lot of pride. But personally, if I get something wrong and I fall on my face, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to share that with clients, with friends and podcasts. You know, I have been the perpetrator of microaggressions. I, of course I have. I'm human. Everybody has. And so as we can normalize unconscious bias as just something that is part of us, it's part of how we grow up. We can't ever fully remove it. All you can do is be aware of it microaggressions. Um, when I was younger, I lived on the island of Grenada, which is a island full of Black people, of, you know, different immigrants from, you know, different, and were colonized over by the French and the Spaniards and the English. And I was 16. And, you know, when I came back, I was like, oh, I want to dance like a Black girl. Oh, I'm an inside out Oreo, like all of these things, which are distasteful, but also, you know, depending on who you're talking to are microaggressions. I was 16. I was an idiot, you know, but it's taken time for me to look back and reflect on that. But I can talk about that because that's not who I am today, but that's also showing my growth and learning. And hopefully somebody else can take that and look back at their own past and growth and learning. So for HR professionals, you are the one who has to cannonball into this sea of DEI, EDI, EDIJ, all of the acronyms and say, okay, how can I relate myself personally to this? How can I relate this to the professional work? And then again, how do I relate it back to business? Because it all has to come back to business. I hope that any C-suite doesn't expect their HR professional to become a DEI expert, period, let alone overnight, which a lot have, especially with the social injustice that has been going on in the world for centuries. But, you know, with the murder of George Floyd, especially recent in the U.S. And, you know, reach out to people. If you don't know what's going on, there are an, a lot of um, HR communities. I'm a part of like eight of them on Slack that are just open for HR professionals. And it's a great place to go and just say, I need help with this or search the archives or content. Um, people are very willing to give and share, especially HR professionals. And that goes so far in just saying, okay, I can take a deep breath. I have something to go on. You know, okay, I have the intro course or I have the connection to a, a consultant or, 
you know, I just have somebody I can hop on the phone with. Um, I have been doing for over the last two years, actually, since the pandemic started, if the the listeners couldn't tell, I'm a little bit of an extrovert. Um, And when I was living in New York City, I was doing like two coffee chats a week with anybody who wanted to talk about anything, whether it was a candidate who wanted coaching or career advice or a friend, but often a lot of HR professionals and just connecting about, you know, the trials and tribulations that we go through. And when we went into pandemic mode, I said, I got to I got to keep this up. I can't put myself into a silo. I can't, you know, only have myself in this echo chamber. And so I, I said to people, I'm, you know, normally I would charge some consulting power cash for that. Um, but I said, please sign up. Here's my booking link. And that would be something I would offer to your listeners as well is you want to chat with somebody for a half hour, grab a half hour with me because this work needs community. The UK has very different ideals and situations that are going on with diversity, equity, and inclusion than the US does Different everything. It's important to cross-pollinate. It's important to understand what other cultures are doing and what works for you and what doesn't work for you. So you can talk around both sides of those issues. Ultimately, find spaces where there's other HR professionals who you can talk to about diversity and inclusion and as well as other HR concerns. Don't just do it online, you know, get on, you know, you don't always have to be on video. I like doing a lot of just audio calls, but talk to people and be introspective. Look at yourself, say, where have I screwed up in the past? Where have I been the perpetrator of a microaggression or, you know, done something wrong that I can speak about to humanize the fact that this is real. It's not going away. And, you know, what, what does it look like for us, you know, to trip on the sidewalk or to do a microaggression and be like, oh shit, I did that. I recognize it. I'm going to be better next time. And it just becomes part of life rather than, you know, I'm so over all of the microaggression trainings. We need it, but it's so broad. And this just needs, we just need to integrate it into everything. It's about moving forward, I guess. I mean, you mentioned communication there, and it's amazing the work you've been doing with those. I love the idea of those coffee meetings, right? They're fantastic. But, you know, a lot of this starts with communication. But, you know, with everything being so busy, I'm trying to, to, to champion those that may go up. You know, we really want to get on top of this, but time is so restrictive. We're trying to still on, you know, onboard new members of staff. We're trying to get people ready for <laughs> work. You know, it's really, it can be really hard for HR professionals to go, you know what? I'm really struggling just to figure out what our employees are really, really thinking and it's even harder to then engage them in a meaningful way when you've got so many things on your HR agenda so on the flip side to that of course there are a number of studies that suggest that you know if if you're miscommunicating well then you're going to develop a lack of trust it's going to result in attrition and people are going to start leaving your business you're not going to necessarily know why and then you're fighting more fires so you know you've, you've highlighted communication there being you know a pivotal piece of this jigsaw if you want to get this right if you want to move things forward. So what steps would you recommend an HR leader take if they want to start delivering meaningful and engaging change to their employees that maybe they don't fully understand what they're thinking at the minute? You have to be transparent. Um, at the Rise Journey, no ego and transparency are two of our values, and we come at that because if we are working with clients and we don't know, we say that we say we don't know. We're going to go back to our think tank and we're going to find answers. And HR professionals can do that too. They do have to be in alignment with the C-suite or whoever the leadership team is and say, here is where we're at. We are brainstorming a way forward. We don't know what it is. In two weeks, we're going to get back to you and we're going to send out a company-wide email. And we're going to let you know what's going on. Rather than BSing your way through it, just be honest and say, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're thinking. Here's the group that's meeting to talk about it. And we will have next steps for you. I don't know what's going to be in those next steps, but we will have next steps for you in two weeks. And then live up to your timeline. Always give a deadline, always give a timeline. Because in that case, the worst case scenario is in two weeks, you say, here's how we've progressed. We need another two weeks. And in two weeks, we're going to give you another update. And that's fair. Everybody's going to say or treat harshly, especially HR. HR gets a bad rap always. Um, And so, but the more, again, human you can be, the more honest you can be about what's going on and where you're at. For the most part, employees don't expect the HR professional or the C-suite to save the world. They just want to know that something is being done. They want to know how they can have impact as employees and how they can do their part. A lot of the DEI stuff can be scary, especially, you know, I am a a white woman. You know, I had a lot of white guilt for a very long time. There are still times when that creeps up and that's a human thing. And if your employees, if you're feeling it, your employees are probably feeling it. So just be honest with them. And there is a level of transparency that you can't have. You know, you don't want to go in and you don't want to out somebody or kind of de-anonymize a survey or anything like the unanonymous, de-anonymous. But it is important to be transparent. And I, you know, I'll, I'll say that a hundred times probably during this podcast. And it matters and it goes a really long way. 
if I was playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, and there is an example I'm thinking of at the back of my mind, so I don't know if this if this reached um, your side of the water, but there was, a, there was an international brewery in the UK who had been giving a message of being this inclusive, amazing brand, and the marketing was fantastic. And then almost out of nowhere, an open letter, which a number of previous and, the, and existing employees had signed and agreed to, kind of outed it, kind of said, actually, what you're seeing as from a marketing consumer angle is this, but the reality is they're treating employees like this and they're worlds apart. The reason I highlight that example is what if you're an HR leader listening to this now and you go, you know what, I want to find out what people are thinking, but actually I'm kind of fearful for it because we're probably not a business that is where it should be. And I'm kind of scared of some of the responses we're going to get back. Like we want to address it, but there's also a bit of us that doesn't want to kind of open the, the hornet's nest for one of a better mm -hmm. word, which has kind of happened with this particular example. And uh, I have to say, I would not want to be the HR leader trying to be in amongst this because it's happening right now. But what would you say to those people who you know, they are desperate to make change? You, you want to you want a more inclusive culture. You want to do things. But for one reason or another, you know, inside yourself that probably you haven't been given a good account of it as a business, not 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 these individuals personally. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you're scared of the response. How do you approach that? If you have the ability to professionally get out of HR, that's one thing you should consider. HR is dealing with tough shit. Yeah. that's part of it. And it's, it's unfortunate. You get to deal with a lot of great pieces. I get to coach people. I get to talk to them. I get to help them learn and grow, but there's always a flip side. And I think really transparently, <laughs> again, if you can't handle that, if, and if you have the ability to find a different job, whether it's the same employer or a different employer, you should consider that because this is the hard stuff. This is also the stuff that's going to be brilliant when it's done well and progress is made. If you are ready to dive in, even if you're scared, you know, recognize that when you do a survey and almost every project that we do at the Rise Journey starts with an engagement survey, whether of the companies or one that we do, to find out what people are actually thinking, both quantitatively and qualitatively, we go into the client and say, hey, look, we're just creating internal benchmarks. We are just finding that baseline. We're going to find the baseline of right now. It's probably not going to be good. And let's remove emotion from that and look at how we can change it once we get that information back in. Now, that's actually one of the reasons that we do analyses on these engagement surveys is because sometimes it's really close to home and it can be really hard to separate out the emotion from people, you know, poo-pooing whatever you're doing or not mm. being happy. And it's important to say, okay, we get this and we're going to process this emotion in a different piece, but we also need to look at the analytics and say, okay, this is the thing that people feel most strongly about and that ties to this thing. So this should be your first initiative versus over here, there's another thing, you know, you want to diversify leadership. That's something that comes up all the time. That's not something you're going to do in three months. Diversifying leadership or C-suite is going to take 12 months or more, but you can start planning and you can start talking about it transparently and you can show the strategy to, to your people. And that all comes out of that engagement survey. And so, although it's hard, you know, that's part of it. And it's just saying, okay, how, who can I go to, to for support to remove some of this emotion from it and really think about how this can turn into tangible, actionable change? Because that's the only thing that's going to make it better. And it, it is hard. And I think you have to, you know, acknowledge that. But again, if you as an HR professional are feeling like this is going to be a really crummy feedback survey or whatever it is, you know, that just means that your people all the more want to talk about it and giving them an opportunity to vent or share or whatever you want to call it is also really important. Just giving them that space and an anonymous capacity relieves some tension. It, it just kind of lets them get the, you know, the breath out and then be transparent about the next steps and timeline. Um, but that is also important just to give them a space. And depending on your culture, that may be more normalized. You know, Americans are a little, tend to be very outspoken about things. So for those who aren't as outspoken, for those who aren't sure, for those who are afraid and can't be on their authentic selves at work or where there isn't psychological safety, those surveys are and feedback, places for feedback are so vital to just keep that group engaged because that is an element of engagement. And that's important to know because, you know, if people, nobody fills out your survey, you know, you might as well fire everybody. They're gone. Give them severance and let them go because they're not engaged. If they're responding on the engagement survey, that means they're there. They, they want to improve. They want to get their voice heard. So the the element of that is, okay, these people want change. How can I embolden them? How can I help them? How can they be a support? How can I involve them to be part of the change? Even if it's small, even if they own one piece of it. And that's part of building DEI into everything is everyone is an owner of DEI. The HR person should not be the sole owner of DEI. 
because I, I think there was probably a collective um, group of everyone listening to this agreeing with you when you when you open that that answer with you know HR have to deal with some tough shit right and I, I think everyone's gone yes we do especially right now <laughs> so you know first thing you've got everyone on board at that point but actually listening through what you said that proactive approach that you've mentioned you made that project go from being scary to sound really sounding really really exciting and I think if you approach it with that angle that passion that clearly you have an abundance actually the outcomes of that project far should far outweigh the risks or the the potential you know uh, disgruntlement if you like that may come first because I think as you say change happens if we if we approach these things proactively and you mentioned there you know diversity is, if you're changing the, the, the diversity maker with your business it's not going to happen in two or three months well you're now talking my language. I'm a recruitment professional, and I know that hiring, retaining the right people is absolutely essential if an organization really wants to implement and create a diverse and inclusive culture, right? That, that, that aligns with the values that you've talked about as well. But from your perspective, then, if we're talking about, you know, improving the diversity of your C-suite or, or whatever it is across the business, really, that process, where does it start? It, it takes 12 months, maybe longer. We want to start changing the makeup of our business. We want more diversity in thought as well, which is equally as important to generating better results, which all the studies show. Where does somebody start? Because I know there's a lot of information out there at the minute about diversity recruitment and pipeline planning. I don't know if everyone really knows what it all means. So when I think about diversity internally at organizations, I think of four pillars. The first one is brand and recruitment. How are you recruiting people? What does your brand say? You know, the marketing of it, technology and product. How is your technology and product addressing DEI? You know, is your product diverse? Is it accessible? All of those pieces. You have internal culture, engagement surveys, what's going on inside. And then you have corporate social responsibility. And so what are you doing externally? How are you supporting? I don't know any company that is going full steam ahead with all four pillars at the same time. Okay. This is about finding and using those engagement surveys and other tools to say, what is most important? What are our short-term wins? Those low-hanging fruit that we can just say, okay, we can run an engagement survey. That's a short thing. We can do it and get it done versus we want to hire a, a person of color to our board. That's a long-term thing. So figuring out within those four pillars, or if you have additional pillars, like add them to it, this is by no means, you know, the only way to look at it, but putting things in those pillars, aligning them with your goals, aligning them with your values, aligning them with your strategic plan for whatever your company is doing and work that. I think at the same time, if you are working to actively recruit more folks of um, an underrepresented background versus diverse talent. That's not really a good way of saying that. I, I wouldn't want to be called diverse talent. I don't know anybody else who would. Um, mm -hmm. Is also looking at the demographics and the makeup of your current organization. You might say, we're really white, which is a very standard thing we hear from clients. We're going to focus on people of color, really broad, you know, and start with one and find tools and ways and a pathway forward. Experiment, say, okay, we're gonna try these three job sites. We're gonna track funnel metrics. We're gonna update our ATS so that we can track these things, et cetera, et cetera. We're gonna do a push for asking people for their demographic information, if you're allowed to do that, so on and so forth. And then say, okay, in six months, have you, has it worked? You know, Are you looking at the numbers and say, actually our strategies have really worked up until this point. So now that we've done this, we're gonna keep this in place and we're gonna pivot a little bit and say, we wanna focus on folks with disabilities and recruiting folks with disabilities. And so while you're keeping steam on and assigning an owner to keep going on the you know, BIPOC or people of color column, you're now focusing on another one and using the tools and using the things that, you know, the wins of that process to a new underrepresented group and so on and so forth. And so you can take small bites. You don't have to say, oh my God, we have to become diverse tomorrow. That's gonna be your downfall. Look, baby steps and take small bits. At the same time, if you are recruiting for folks that don't look or sound or feel or are like your current demographics, you must also work on that internal culture piece. You can hire, for example, all the Black folks in the world. And if you don't have a culture that sustains them and feeds them and grows them and challenges them and engages them and promotes them, they're going to go right out the door. And it's going to be a lot of wasted cost. If they are engaging an external recruitment agency, which sometimes that's good and necessary and helpful, you know, don't waste that money that you spent on recruitment by not focusing on that retention piece and that engagement piece and that growing piece. And this is where good DEI is good HR and organizational development, because to retain them, you need to focus on your performance reviews, focus on your one-on-ones. You need to focus on, are our pay raises and promotions equitable? Are we tracking the demographics of those? When you look at your tiers of your company, your levels of your company, are those levels diverse? Because that's a huge part of diversity. You know, a lot of our clients say, oh, well, you know, all of our black folks, and again, I go, I default to race, but all of our black folks are in the bottom two tiers. That's not diversity. That means you have a bunch of black folks who are in level level positions and you're probably not putting the emphasis on how to grow them 
on how to mentor them. So you have to look at all these different facets of it, but you tackle one thing at a time. So if you're saying, okay, we want to, we want to hire people of color, maybe even go new step. We want to hire black folks and we're going to advertise on blackjobs.com and um, POC in tech. And then at the same time you say, okay, we ran our engagement survey and it said that people want more mentorship. So we're going to work on building out a mentorship program and we're going to make sure it's diverse. And we're going to make sure in these, and this is how we're defining diversity. And then you say, okay, now we're going to focus on recruiting people with disabilities. Okay. Stage two of internal support is we need to revamp our performance review process. So as you do things in these different columns, they need to be matched and kind of in parallel sister initiatives in a different column, because not everything has to be at hundred percent all the time, but you have to make sure there is balance. And again, good DEI is good HR, is good organizational development, is good performance management, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they have to balance each other out because anytime you go too far in an extreme, and I found this anywhere in life, you lose balance. And it's about balance. So in the US, I don't know if they do things um, slightly different from a recruitment perspective, but are you able to positively discriminate in the sense that, you know, if you want to rebalance your workforce by introducing more uh, employees that are, you know, black, for example, or from different different cultures, different backgrounds, are you able to positively advertise in that way in, in the US to, 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 you know, if you mentioned disabilities there as well, are you able to actively, you know, target individuals that come from a, a, an underrepresented group within a, within a workforce? You can target sources where people of that be found. Um, we have historically black colleges and universities. That would sure. be the first place I would say, post your jobs there, you know, start an internship program for that school, build out a scholarship for students who want to go into tech from that college or university. You can partner in really specific and niche ways. You can't yeah. say, Hey, we want to hire black folks. That's it's discrimination against anybody who's not black, but you sure. can say, and we have our equal opportunity employment commission and say, we are focusing on recruiting a diverse workforce. This yeah. is what it means. It means people who are of all races, all religions, all abilities, all whatever. And you can be very explicit and more so like we have a standard EEOC blurb that's just like, we don't discriminate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But take that and expand it. What do you really mean by hiring a diverse workforce? Talk about what that means. Have a page dedicated on your website. Share your current statistics. That's one thing I challenge every employer with and I get a lot of kickback. I am very on the liberal transparency end of the scale. These are just numbers. And for you to get better, for you to be held accountable to get better, you need to share this and sharing it publicly saying, hey, we're 90% white. We are 70% male. We are X, Y, and Z. You can share it and have it be anonymous. Again, you don't want to out anybody. That's going to hold you accountable for in six months from now, publishing those stats again. That's going to hold you accountable for doing better. And that's important is having accountability partners. And for your HR folks out there, they desperately want accountability partners. For the most part, I haven't met a single HR person who's not ready to make change. They just don't know who they can link arms with. Mm. And that's a way of providing them support is saying, okay, we're going to do this. It's really hard. C-suite tend to not want that, especially white male C-suite. No offense. I'm dating a white male. Like I got nothing against them. Um, but you know, status quo is comfortable. This work is uncomfortable. This work can make you feel weird. You know, call out when it makes you feel weird call out when it makes you feel uncomfortable because that's when it's working. It should be anyway. And if you talk about what makes you feel uncomfortable, you're probably going to get more comfortable. And the next time it happens, you're going to feel more comfortable and then you're going to get uncomfortable again. And that's part of saying, okay, let's publish our statistics. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. You were talking before then, you know, there's no point doing any of this if your culture isn't ready. And I think you're absolutely right about doing that. And you talked about, you know, to get your culture ready, then this is where HR can have such a huge role to play, because presumably this can't be done in a silo, right? It can't just be down to just an HR department, just an ND department. We need to be building in ED&I to all aspects, you know, policies, procedures, whatever it is that comes in. So it really does find its way through all facets of an organizational structure, all facets of a business, all departments, so that when everyone's hopefully on board and everyone is following that 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 universal path, that's when you can start retaining the employees, attracting and really 
improving the the culture of your workforce and and and, and is that am I correct in thinking that's kind of where you were going with it but if the culture isn't ready you're going to lose those individuals 100% it's a it's an a, you know you open a door to let somebody in and they're you know going out the on the back porch you know they're in and out it's and this isn't just about race this is about all of the elements of diversity and um, I actually have a slide up from a presentation I'm doing later today and you know diversity is is broad you know, it's race, ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, social class, socioeconomic background, ability, disability, religious beliefs, national origin, political beliefs, languages spoken, parenthood status or caretaker status, military. There's a lot of elements to diversity. So I get caught up on race. I think a lot of people get up on caught up on race and like LGBTQIA status. But, you know, looking at all of these other elements and talking about them, tracking them. But yeah, if you're not talking about this, if you're not open about this, if you're not soliciting feedback from your employees, if you're not engaging them, training them, facilitating conversations with them, they're going to come in the front door and go out the back. It's interesting because as a recruiter, I've challenged this before in, in previous podcasts on, the, on a similar subject matter. When we're talking about diversity is there has been a real, uh, I don't want to use the word, but it's there, trend for businesses to be seen to be doing the right things. But when you look at what they're actually doing behind the scenes from a recruitment perspective, a lot of these positions where they're championing diversity, bringing in experts, you know, diversity experts, diversity managers, whatever it might be, they're often on short term contracts. And it's <laughs> that always for me goes the wrong way around. Like, are you committing to this over the long term? Or why do you think you can suddenly make the whole change on a, on a and I appreciate you know, this isn't saying for all businesses, sometimes maybe they want to get the things in place for someone else to take over and keep it running. But it did always strike me as interesting, which when this kind of suddenly took hold, certainly here in the UK from a green perspective, it went mad and everyone was suddenly trying to, you know, pandering to get, get their diversity processes and values out to the market and out to the wider world. And yet they're recruiting on short-term contracts. I don't know if you've seen the same in the US, but surely if we are looking for a cultural change, it has to be a step-by-step change that's over a forever term, not a short-term fix. But I don't know how, how are you seeing it in the US? Has it been a wave? Is it something that is continuous? Or indeed, can you get the, the, the right process in place over a short term and just hope the employees then take it further? I don't know. The employees cannot be responsible for taking it further. They own a part of the process. They are integral as part of the process, but it's really important for any leadership to know it is their responsibility. It is not the employee's responsibility. There has been a massive trend in the U.S. to say, oh, shit, we have to change our photos on our website to look inclusive and and diverse. And we're going to show a black person. We're going to show a person in a hijab and we're going to show somebody in a wheelchair. Or, you know, when you look at our people page, we need to get a whole bunch of black folks so that it looks diverse. And, you know, okay, we're diverse. Great, great, cool. That's very much. That was a very fast trend. I would say the partners we work with now are saying, you know, we, we tried some things and it didn't work. And now we need to bring in experts to support us because it doesn't have enough cohesion. Again, it's not built into all the pieces. It's not, it doesn't have a through line that is understandable by both C-suite and, you know, people on the ground. This is never going away. If I can echo, you know, a thousand times to any leaders, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, accessibility is not going away. If anything, the current youngest generation is the most outspoken. They are their most worldly frankly. They are the most, they're online, they're talking to each other. This is not going away. Um, Right now, there's a lot of news about the great resignation. People are leaving in droves because employers aren't, don't have servant leadership. They're not treating the employees well. You know, what does it look like to rather be unemployed or work on a trade or a craft because you're so burnt out from dealing with the nonsense and, you know, hearing, oh yes, we're diverse and then nothing happening or having to even write a letter like in your example, externally. So the best things an organization can do is say, how are we dedicating ourselves to a piece of this? How are we putting budget? If there's no budget, you're not doing enough, period. End of story. If there's not budget, don't bother. You're not doing it right. How are we putting budget toward it? Even if it's small budget, it doesn't have to be extraordinary, but it has to be the same budget you're putting toward L&D programs or you know, executive coaching. Maybe stop doing your executive coaching in favor of some DNI programming or organizational development work. It's very much on trend to be outwardly outspoken about DEI, just like every organization changing their logo to a rainbow for Pride Month. Sure. Like, like, okay, we get it. You think you're friendly, but do you have a stipend for those who want to go through gender reassignment surgery so that they can have additional cash because it's very expensive and often not covered by health insurance? Do you offer more than 12 weeks of parental leave, not just maternity leave, but parental leave? Is it paid? Those are DEI policies. Those help people. Do you have flexible scheduling so parents or caretakers can work when it's effective and efficient for them rather than expecting them to, you know, have a child on their lap while they're trying to write a report, which isn't effective for you? 
And so thinking about these things, again, that enable people. And when I talk about accessibility, I'm talking about enabling people. How can you allow people to do their best work, knowing that you and I work differently? How you work is not necessarily the best way that I work, but how can we create a workplace that enables both of us to do our best work? Uh, one of our advisors, um, Jen Swain, is a COO at a nonprofit, and her organization is um, piloting a four-day work week. And what does it mean to have a four-day work week? Does it, and without cutting pay, mind you. And so if you look up the Rise Journey and look up Jen, and she has written a couple of articles about it, and it's really interesting because it's an experiment. You know, you're trying something new. It could fail miserably. It could be the best thing that your organization has ever done. But try something. Try doing six months of paid parental leave and see how you're retaining parents. Try offering fertility benefits or, you know, egg freezing benefits. And I'm actually going through the egg freezing process right now. And my organization allows me $5,000 of reimbursement on it. That's allowing me to go through that process. That's going to help retain women. Look at how many people use that. And then how are they retained? What's their retention, you know, average? And so taking a look at these policies and directly what the impact is. And you're going to have to do that because it isn't going away. I think you made some Excellent point. So the four-day week one's an interesting one because this is quite hot in the uh, in the UK press at the minute. The BBC have just announced, uh, I think literally today, um, some of the results from an Icelandic study, uh, which have been very, very positive about uh, certain companies going to a four-day week and they've seen some really, really positive results. And, um, you know, is the 9 to 5.30 in the UK, you know, Monday to Friday, is it a bit old-fashioned now? Is it time to to wake up and, and, and try something new? And I think probably now is the you know, the time where we can start to experiment, particularly post-pandemic. The world of work has changed. The, the way that we connect has changed. The way that we meet and, and socialise and, and, and go about doing our business has changed. So I think it's a good time to be embracing experiment or experimenting, should I say, I can't get the word out. Um, it's, it's a good time. So I just want to caveat that with the ability to be have a flexible schedule or work from home is a privilege. And a lot of people don't recognize that. There are a lot of jobs that are going to have to remain nine to five or yeah. remain five to nine. You know, they're the third, you know, three shifts. It is a privilege to be able to work from home. It is a privilege to be able to open up my computer and do my work because I've had the education and the background and the support and the finances to do so. And it's also really important to remember that because we have a client right now who has kind of the on the road team and has the office team. And we're working on saying, how can we create equitable benefits for the team that can't have flexible schedules. What else can we do to support them? Because a flexible schedule doesn't support them. They can't have it, period, end of story, because otherwise the work won't get done. Sure. So it's really important to think about what does your workforce look like? Can some of them have one thing and some of them have another, but is it equitable? Are you providing them, even if it's not the same, that they feel like they're both getting the same amount, the, the benefits that are quality to them? And so being really intentional, again, recognizing if you work at a phone center, you can't, you know, you're going to have your nine to five, you have certain quotas, those kinds of things. So it's really important for employers to recognize for those who can work from home, it is a privilege or it can work remotely or can work from a WeWork or whatever co-working space. It is a privilege. Not everybody can do that. You know, the people who were hit the hardest in the pandemic were the ones who are, are essential workers. They can't work remotely. Our doctors can't work remotely. You yeah. know, those who open the grocery stores to allow us to have food. So it's also really important to recognize that Flexible scheduling is not the end all be all, but it is important. And it is a piece, again, a piece of the puzzle. But you have to look at what your group looks like and feels like and sounds like and does in order to figure out what diversity DEI works for you. It's a really good point. And as you say, you know, one answer doesn't fit all. And that's the uniqueness of this. And as you say, understanding your own workforce and what they need to make that equitable, as you mentioned, is absolutely essential. Something that um, in my research for this podcast came really apparent to me is you also, and we talked a little bit about race, you say it's kind of the de facto place that we go when we talk about diversity and think about diversity. But actually, you're really passionate about, you know, in, invisible disabilities advocacy. So, you know, you call it often the forgotten group when thinking about diversity, because as as a, an under advocated group in the workplace, they often you know don't quite get the, the, the same amount of attention necessarily that we're seeing. So tell me a little bit more about your work in relation to, to your advocacy for, for invisible disabilities. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with depression my junior year of college and um, went on medication for anxiety shortly thereafter, and have been on and off medication for many years. I don't know, I can't even do the math of when I was in college now. And I actually didn't consider myself disabled until about four or five years ago. I had been broken up with my long-term boyfriend, was totally brokenhearted. I had a bad review at work, which I felt was um, due to unfair uh, unfair practices and mismanagement by my manager. Was very unhappy, I felt it was a toxic work environment. And was really at the end of my rope and 
turned to one of my communities called Dreamers and Doers, which is a private women's network and said, who else is feeling like me? Who else is just like totally burnt out at work and the workforce is not working and all of these things. And I'm just exhausted and nobody's talking about this. And in, you know, within 24 hours, I had 50 comments from women being like, I feel this way too. Don't worry. This is the reason I left the workforce. This, that, the other thing, just tremendous outpouring of support. And I said, why the hell is nobody talking about this? Like what is going on? And it wasn't just depression and anxiety. It wasn't just mental health concerns and issues, but it was women who had what I call invisible disabilities of any disability you can't see. An invisible disability can be short-term. It can be long-term. It can be chronic. It can be temporary. In the U.S., we consider pregnancy and post-pregnancy a disability. You go on disability for it. You don't take time if your employer doesn't offer it. And so for me, you know, it was about learning. It was about hearing these voices. Um, And so I ended up doing some research um, and and writing um, some posts and sharing about, you know, why, you know, ultimately that women are leaving the workforce in droves, the women that have invisible disabilities. They need their female communities, their women-centric communities, because it was the only safe space. It was the only place where they had psychological safety, where they could bring their authentic selves, even if it was a hurting authentic self like I did. And that they had to create skills out of thin air because they had to create coping mechanisms. And those coping mechanisms became skills, you know. Um, one woman I talked to, um, she, in college, was an undiagnosed narcoleptic. And so she kept falling asleep in class and her professors would kick her out of class and yell at her and say, like, stop partying. If you're partying this hard, you don't deserve to be in college and berated her for it. And so she had to figure out how to learn all of her studies by herself with the textbooks, you know, pre, pre really fast, solid internet. And when she decided to pivot her career to become a software engineer, that skill of self-learning she was able to pick up software engineering very quickly because she had honed that skill because of an undiagnosed invisible disability. That wasn't diagnosed until her mid late thirties. Wow. So these things are happening and people aren't aware. When we think about the pandemic, a lot of people are going to have chronic disabilities because of COVID. COVID, we don't know how it's affecting us. We don't know if it's going to linger for two days, two months, two years, two decades. You know, And a lot of people are going to recognize that there's a lot more limitations in their lives if they've had COVID, if people around them have had COVID, a lot more people are going to have to become caretakers. Our hospitals are going to have to change how they're treating people. It's going to have to become, you know, we're going to keep discovering things about COVID that, and all the variants that we don't know. And so the conversation about disability is getting much bigger now. Um, There's organizations like Chronically Capable, which help you find individuals with chronic illness or disabilities. There's a lot more clothing brands, um, unhidden clothing for adaptive clothing for folks with disabilities. So there's not the stigma. If you do have to go into the office, you have items of clothing that support, you know, dealing and working with your disability without it being out because there's always questions. Diversibility is a great group if you are disabled or have a chronic illness and you want to just find a community. So it's coming more and more to light, but it is very much a forgotten piece of diversity. And it is hard because you can't see it, at least on the invisible side of things. You, you can't see it. So you have to rely on HR and you have to rely on people self, self-ascribing and saying, hey, I'm disabled. And so that way it can be tracked and your voice as a disabled person or your voice as somebody with an invisible disability can be tracked. And certainly, I think post-pandemic, there's, we haven't seen the ramifications yet on the impact it's going to have on mental health. I think, um, you know, certainly in recruitment, I've I've come across a number of individuals now who are struggling with more agoraphobic type tendencies now. You know, scared of going outdoors, scared of going back into the social world. They've got so used to working at home, being at home, being locked in, that actually the idea of changing that world again, they've created new habits, is actually quite frightening. People have lost their jobs, don't know how to get back into it. I think there's definitely there's a mental health aspect from that side there's the mental health aspect of being constantly connected which i think is having a different impact so there's certainly enough a lot of invisible things that we come across as recruiters that maybe the employers that they're working for or have left or whatever or even homes and families are not seeing um so i definitely think there's a there's an undercurrent here which will be interesting to see how this manifests itself over the next months and years because i do think as you say the impact of COVID, not just the disease itself in, in terms of COVID infection, but actually the mental health repercussions of what COVID's, the, the impact that COVID's had on the world. And I don't think we've quite got, we certainly haven't got to the end of what that looks like yet. And then to circle back, as the pandemic has proved, a lot of jobs can be done remotely. So what does it look like if you open up and let all those jobs that can be done remotely be done remotely? What does that mean for hiring folks with disabilities? Yeah. Because all of a sudden you've opened up this space where people who can work from home, who need to work from home, who can't, go into an office because our you know, subway and metro systems aren't accessible, can have a job that pays them well, where they can have health insurance, 
you know, the U.S. is very unkind to folks with disabilities in terms of what they're able to do. They can't get married because they lose their disability because they, quote unquote, make too much money. So there's a lot of stigma, you know, in the governments. And I, I don't know about the U.K. government, but in the U.S. government against folks with disabilities. So by allowing them to have gainful employment and not just gainful employment, not making the bare minimum, but just because somebody has a disability doesn't mean they're not the best person for the job. Doesn't mean that they're not smart. Doesn't mean that they're not incredibly capable. And they're being left out because you say, oh, this has to be in office. Sure. And so really rethinking, how does rethinking your workforce in, in terms of flexibility, how does that change your, what you can do for recruitment and what you can do for you know, having gl a global workforce and bringing in those cultures? Because all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm currently living in New Hampshire. It is very white in New Hampshire. If I were an employer and I can only recruit folks from New Hampshire, I'm going to have naturally a very white workforce, even if I work my damnedest to have a diverse workforce with underrepresented talent. If I all of a sudden can turn my 100 jobs in, into remote work, I can hire from anywhere in the U.S. Of course, there's setup and there's some HR things that you have to do. But ultimately, once they're set up, you're good to go. And so how does that change who you can recruit, who you can partner with, who you can support, what your business can grow with when you have diversity? Because we all know that diverse businesses perform better. Speaking to converted for me, I've got a brother who's disabled um, and he, he only has one arm, but he works in aeronautical engineering. And they're not the two things you'd necessarily put together. You'd think, you know, engineering, you think hands, you think you need to be able to do certain things. But he's, you know, he's, he's doing very, very well. He's quite senior in, in his company and he works in aeronautical engineering. So, you know, it's he's got the intellect, he's got the ability to, to do the job and they've given him that opportunity, which I think um, is, is, is my own personal experience. An example of where, you know, if opportunities are given, you can be amazed at, at, at what can be achieved. So, yeah, I think you've for sure. Uh, I'd like to open the L&D vault, if I may. Opening the L&D vault. Three short, sharp questions. So in hindsight, what's one thing you now know that you wish you had known when you began your career? That all of my skills actually are transferable. My background is in theater and stage management. And I went into the real world being like, oh, crap, like, how do I do anything? And it turned out that all of my skills of dealing with dramatic people, of coordination, um, dealing with high profile people, time management are all really helpful in the real world. Fantastic. Well, I love that response because I have a very similar background. And um, yeah, I did also did theatre uh, theatre performances and, um, as a master's and everything else. And uh, the skills are quite transferable and it makes you, I guess, extrovert to talk to people like you have so elo <laughs> eloquently today as well, which is great. Um, what's the one common myth you often hear in the workplace in relation to ED&I and, and can you debunk it? That it's expensive and that it takes too many resources to do it. And ultimately, as a consultant, I hope you, you pay for support, but there are a lot of things you can do that are grassroots. There's a lot of low cost items. There's a lot of discovery. There's a lot of speakers who want to go in and talk with you. There's a lot of internal support that you can get and people who are willing to be outspoken internally if you have a psychologically safe workforce. And that DEI is going to look different from organization to organization. I always say the bones of it are the same, but you know what Amazon does and what Xerox does and you know, what BBC does is not going to look, that their DEI is not going to look, or EDI is not going to look the same for your organization. So there's no one right way to do it. The only right way is to do it and continue on it and iterate on it. Sure. Love that. What is the one piece of advice you would give to someone recently appointed to an HR leadership role who has no prior experience in developing organizational cultures? Talk to everybody you can who has experience. Just take, you know, your first two to three months and like, have one conversation a day with an expert. Most people are willing to talk with you. You just have to ask them and say, hey, can I pick your brain for 30 minutes about X, Y, and Z? Give them specific things you want to talk to them about. You lead the conversation. Everybody's going to give you resources and links and support. You're going to find those you know, HR channels. You got to learn from everybody around you. Love that. Jess Oswald, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. I love your passion for this subject. Thank you so much for bringing all of your expertise, all of your knowledge, all of your experiences to the HRND podcast. Of course, there are a number of places the listeners can find out more about you and the work that you do. If you're interested in finding out more, please do go to the Rise Journey. Com. I will also put Jess's um, LinkedIn profile in the episode notes. You can find that as well. And there's another website, which is um, josvo.com, where if you go there, you can find out about some consultation packages. Jess offers 30-minute, 60-minute, even 10-hour consultation packages for companies that need it. So please do check out all of those links in the episode notes. And I believe as well, Jess, you're about to launch a lunch and learn kind of seminar and series which really sort of gets into the nuts and bones of this subject here we've been talking about in a whole new level tell us a little bit more about that 
Yeah. So we discovered from our clients that they were really sick of two, two and a half hour workshops. And they said, we need bite-sized accessible learning that does deep dives into niche topics. And my business partner and I came up with a very creative name of Lunch and Learns. And what they are is 45 minutes to an hour, deep dive on a specific topic, not breadth, but depth, and allowing you know, facilitated conversations, allowing experts from different areas to really dive into what they're experts in. Um, we have over 60 sessions live on our website. If you go to therisejourney.com, you can find and click on Lunch and Learn programs from a number of different topics from advocacy, allyship, belonging, change management, learning and development, mental health, um, and all of the different elements of DEI as well. It's really important to us that we're able to provide small and price efficient learning support for our clients and, you know, abroad because. It's about that continuous learning versus a one and done mentality. And so the lunch and learns are meant to be part of a curated curriculum where we work with you to support the needs of your organization. And because we have so many lunch and learns, we can really kind of pick and choose and create a curriculum that works best for you. Amazing. Amazing. It sounds fantastic. I understand as well, if anyone does contact you about those lunch and learns and they quote the eight that you heard about them on the HLND podcast, there is a 10% discount on those courses as well. So, you know, no better time to go and check that stuff out. Go and check out jayosro.com. Go and check out therisejourney.com. Really deep dive into this information because Jess has so much to offer. So please do check out those links. You will not be disappointed and you'll take everything we've discussed today to a whole new level. Of course, if you are also an HR L&D professional listening to this podcast and you need support with an HR or L&D related vacancy, then please do give myself or my team a call. You can catch us at www.jgarecruitment.com. But for now, that's everything, folks. Thanks so much for joining me today. I cannot wait to bring you the next episode of the HLND podcast real soon. And I just want to finish once again by saying a huge thank you to Jess Oswo for joining me today on the HLND podcast. Thank you, Jess. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.